Hey, well, we're so glad um, that you're here this morning. As I said, um, as I jumped up before, we're actually in part two of a series that, uh, that we started last week um, called Deal Breaker. Um, and if you weren't here, let me catch you up to speed so we can kind of all, um, we'll do a little review and we'll all get on the same page. What we, are, what we said was a deal breaker uh, is a barrier that someone cannot overlook. And, uh, and we, we have deal breakers in all areas of our lives, right? We have uh, relational deal breakers. There kind of comes a point in relationships where we go, hey, if, if you were to do this or if you were to say this or if this were to happen, I couldn't move past that. Uh, we have deal breakers, when it, uh, barriers when it comes to work. You know, if a boss was to say something to you or maybe if you were to get paid under a certain amount, you would say, you know what, I can't, I can't do this. That's a deal breaker for me. Uh, you have deal breakers when it comes to choosing a, a, a school for your children. And you kind of say, hey, you know, what, what are all, and you have all these factors that you line up and your deal breakers might be different to someone else's, but, but we have deal breakers uh, when it comes to so many different areas of our lives, these barriers that you say, you know what, if this was to happen, I just could not move past it, I could not overlook it. And, uh, and the same is true when it comes to Christianity. Uh, the same is true when it comes to our faith. Uh, in fact, maybe you're in this room today and, uh, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian because of one of these. You know, you learned something or you discovered something or you, you were never a Christian to begin with and you were like, hey, this is a barrier for me that I just cannot move past and, and I don't know how to move past it and maybe you don't want to move past it. Um, and maybe for some of you, you kind of went to church for a while and you considered yourself a Christian and then life got in the road and life happened and then, or maybe you experienced something or you discovered something and you walked away because of a barrier. You said there's something standing in the road and I cannot move past it. Uh, and maybe some of you are actually in this room this morning and you would consider yourselves Christians and there are some barriers in your faith that you don't want to look at and you don't want to discover and you don't want to unpack because you're afraid of what would happen if you were to look at that thing. You're like, well, that might be a barrier that I could not overcome and I'm afraid of what will happen if I open it up and if I begin to look through it. And last week we looked at this um, whole body of research that was started in um, 2017 by an organization called McCrindle. Um, they're not a Christian organization, they're just a, 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 um, a for-profit company that does a whole lot of research and um, a, a group of Christian organizations went to them and they said, hey, would you actually discover and would you find out for us all the deal breakers that exist within, um, or that reasons that people push back against Jesus, push back against the church and push back against Christianity in Australia? And so they did this whole body of research, they compiled it into a 52-page report, um, but what they identified were these were the major deal breakers for people who resisted faith. And these were them. Uh, they said, obviously, these all add up to more than 100. That's because it was like, you can select as many as you want. And so 33% said homosexuality, the way uh, Christians view or treat homosexuals, that's a deal breaker. 24% of people said uh, hell and condemnation. 24% said suffering. 23% said supernatural elements. 21% of people said, hey, the role of women in the church, that's a deal breaker for us. And then we get down. People said the Bible um, is a deal breaker. And then people said science and evolution is a deal breaker. And, uh, and what we discovered last week is, uh, and I kind of talked about it, um, is that it's kind of saddening to see that these are deal breakers. And the reason that it's saddening, and the reason it's particularly saddening for me is because at the center of Christianity is not a view on sexuality. At the center of Christianity is not a view on hell and condemnation. At the center of Christianity is not an answer to suffering, at the center of Christianity is not this like misogynistic worldview. It's not even a book. At the center of Christianity is not a book. We're going to talk about that today. This is going to be fun. Um, and at the center of Christianity is not a, a scientific worldview. It's not a science book that you look at. But at the center of Christianity is a person. And that person 
is called Jesus. And we actually kind of said it this way last week, that we said Christianity begins with Jesus, not Genesis. At the center of Christianity, the starting point of Christianity is Jesus, not Genesis. And we said so many reasons and so many things that people resist for are actually not central to the message of Christianity. That they're important, but they're, they're, they're secondary issues. And, uh, and I la- asked you to do something last week, and if you weren't here last week, then you're off the hook. You don't have to do it because you're here for part two. Um, but last week, everyone who was here, I said, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to just put your deal breakers on hold. I didn't want you to abandon them. I didn't want you to forget them. I just wanted you to kind of time them out for seven days so that today and next week we could time back in and we could begin to, to look at them. And so while we time back in, I thought, um, I thought I'd pull out something I found uh, during the week when I was at home. It's actually my birth certificate. Um, this is going to scare some of you at how young I am. Um, but the birth certificate is really fascinating. And I was, I was reading it during the week and it, it has all sorts of information on it. Um, you know, it's got my name, like Christopher, that's my full name. Um, Ross Podlick, um, tells me like, uh, tells me when I was born, like 10th of January 1990, tells, uh, tells people where I was born, um, in the Northwest Private Hospital at Everton Park. Um, it's, it like details my parents and what their occupations were at the time. And this is how you know it's an official document, like it's got a seal down the bottom. Like I know nothing about seals, but I just imagine any document that's got a seal on it, I'm like, that is a legit document. And, um, and I was thinking about this because I have a birth certificate, but you have a birth certificate too. Everyone in this room has a birth certificate, and some of you are probably like, I don't know where mine is. Like, maybe you can't remember the last time you looked at it, the last time you needed it. Um, but we all have one of these birth certificates. And so I kind of wanted to, to just get you thinking, like, what would happen to you if your birth certificate vanished? The answer? Nothing. Some of you probably don't even know where your birth certificate is. Like, it's, it, it legitimately has vanished, okay? Nothing would happen to you if your birth certificate was to vanish. What about, what would happen to you if every record of your birth would have vanished from the earth? The hospital you were born in got uh, torn down, that your birth certificate was burnt, maybe the, the records where it was, maybe uh, something happened and you just had no records. Nothing. Nothing would happen because you're still here. Like, you're still living and breathing. Like, your birth certificate, nah, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter. What if this? What if someone discovered an error on your birth certificate? Probably the most inconvenient thing is that you'd have to celebrate your birthday on a new date. Okay? That is probably the most inconvenient thing. But the truth is, if someone discovered an error or a typo on your birth certificate, nothing would change. Nothing would change the fact that you're still sitting in this room, and that you're still hanging out right now. In fact, it would be weird, right? Could you imagine if you went to a job interview and you're sitting across from someone and they're about to, they're, they've got their binder out and they're about to ask, you know, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses and all that. Uh, but before they do, they say, um, could you please show me your birth certificate? And you say, well, why? Why do you want to see it? And they will go, well, because I can't, I can't know that you exist without your birth certificate. At that moment, you'd probably like start looking around like, where are the cameras? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm here. Like, The fact that I'm here shows that I exist. I don't need a piece of paper to show you that I exist. And so if we we take this idea that we all have a birth certificate and we've all kind of, um, and the documents um, kind of, whoops, let's go here. There we go, that's better. And the reason that you don't need a birth certificate is is because your birth certificate documents you, right? It tells you where you were born, maybe who your parents were, what their occupation was, what date it was. It tells a story, but it didn't create you In fact, we should probably just move past that. You don't want to think about how you were created. And it definitely 
doesn't sustain you, right? In fact, some of you probably didn't even know where this was until like, you're probably thinking like, where actually is mine? Okay, but it's, having this piece of paper is not dependent on it sustaining you. You don't need this piece of paper in your life for you to exist. It doesn't sustain you. And when it comes to Christianity, and when it comes to this thing called the Bible, what about this, you know? What came first, the event or the documents about the event? And some of you, I get, you're probably skeptical and you're dubious about this, this thing called the resurrection because let's be honest, I'd be dubious too if I walked into a place and they say, hey, we believe that a guy rose, uh, that lived, died and then came back again. I'd understand that. If this is you, you're not going to want to miss next week because we are going to talk all about this event next week and we're going to look at it from a whole heap of different angles. But let's just assume that the event happened, okay? Let's just assume we'll worry about it next week. What came first, the event? Or the documents? Well, it naturally follows that the event came first. Because if the event didn't happen, there would be nothing to document. There would be nothing to write about. There would be no story to tell if the event hadn't happened first. But, but what has happened across history is unintentionally, Christians have kind of shifted their focus. They haven't shifted what they believe. They haven't changed what they believe. But their focus has shifted from the event to the documents. And then when people ask them about their deal breakers, well, what about hell? What about suffering? What about science? Christians have gone, let's talk about the documents. Let's talk about the documents. Let's talk about the documents. And so Christians have kind of said, hey, if we can validate the documents, that, that proves everything, right? But the inverse of that is also true. If you want to take that approach, then if you can find one error in the documents, everything crumbles. And the truth is, we kind of take this approach, right? We've got to have this approach like as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. If the Bible, we can kind of get everything in a line and we can prove everything. And if the Bible is true, then our faith is all right. And, but Christians have also go, well, if someone can find an error, if they can, someone can disprove something, then, then I guess that must mean that my faith is shaken, that my faith is worthless, that there's like a hole there. And, and that's what happens when you kind of say, hey, I want to prove everything in this document to be true but the truth is that that while these documents are important and if you're a christian in this room i just want to clarify something like right off the bat i am not saying that as a christian i don't believe the bible isn't inspired i am not saying that i don't believe it's the word of god i'm not saying any of those things but what i'm saying is is that the bible didn't start christianity and we don't have to have as a Bible goes, so goes our faith approach to faith. And so the natural question to kind of ask is like, well, if our faith isn't based on a book, what is it based on? If our faith isn't based on a whole heap of documents, what is our faith actually based on? And, and I want to take you back like 2,000 years ago. Because 2,000 years ago, there was a guy, a church planter called Paul, um, who hated the church. We're going to find out all about Paul next week. Who hated the church, who then became probably the most significant historical figure in the Jesus movement apart from Jesus. Some historians would argue that in terms of the spread of Christianity, Paul was more influential than Jesus. Paul was more influential in the spread of Christianity than Jesus. And Paul wrote this letter. It's included in the documents that we have. He wrote this letter to a church in a city called Corinth. 
and he, in this letter, he writes what our faith should be based on. And just to kind of give you some context, um, if you were to look at our culture and our society and things that are permitted in our society today, and then you were to kind of compare that next to Corinth, uh, we would be G-rated. We, we, you know, we would probably be, if there was a version less than G-rated, maybe there is, I don't know, less than G-rated, like that would be how our culture would compare to Corinth. And so Paul writes to this city where any, everything and anything went. And he explains to them, he goes, hey, this is what our faith is based on. He spends his whole, um, almost a, a full chapter giving his reasoning, but then he kind of gets to his conclusion. And this is what he concludes. We're going to look at it today. He says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if Jesus didn't live, if he didn't die, and then if three days later there was not an empty tomb, he goes, this is, this is what happens if this isn't the case, then all our preaching is useless. And this preaching, that's just a fancy church word for talking about Jesus. What Paul is saying here is if Jesus didn't rise from the, from the dead, then you should stop talking about him. You should stop sharing about him because it is useless. And then he, then he kind of takes it to another extreme. He takes it to another extreme and he says, more than that, your faith is useless. If Jesus didn't rise, it doesn't matter about the book. Your faith is useless. You should give it up. You should walk away. You should pack it in right now and say, see you later. That's what Paul wrote. And Paul wrote this before the Bible existed because when Paul was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, the Bible wasn't a thing. Paul wasn't writing the Bible. He was writing a letter to a group of followers at Corinth. And he says, you should, you should pack it in. And, and I understand that, that maybe some of you are sitting there and you're like, okay, well, even if he didn't, if I don't believe that like he rose from the grave sort of stuff, could I just kind of still take on some of his like moral precepts and tenets, right? Because he's kind of a good teacher, like some of the things Jesus teaches, like they help me have, they might help you have a better marriage. They might help you have better relationships at work. They might help you be wiser with your finances. And so maybe you're like, well, you know what? I'll just take Jesus as a good moral teacher who is just an average human and then he died. And Paul would say, no, you can't, you can't take him like that. You can't, you can't take him uh, like that because you could follow any guru you wanted. You could follow any self-help person. You could follow any shaman. Just pick someone and follow them, but you can't follow Jesus. And the reason Paul would say that is because of something that, that we so often miss in our culture. And we so often kind of move past because we get so focused on the teachings of Jesus. But the truth is, is that Jesus' teachings were not the driving force of his movement. When Jesus was, was lived and, and uh, in the three years that he, his followers were kind of following him and he was teaching people about, his teachings were not the driving force. In fact, a lot of people stopped following Jesus because of what he taught. If you read um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographical accounts we have of Jesus' life, what you actually discover is that some of Jesus' teachings are just plain weird. Like, the, we know some of them, and then some of them, we're still trying to figure out what he was talking about 2,000 years later. And more than that, Jesus' teachings were not that attractive to people. Jesus taught and said things like, give up all your possessions and follow me. Jesus said and taught things like, you should leave your family and follow me. Jesus said, hey, you should take up your cross, which is a Roman device of torture, and follow me. And it's going to suck, and it's going to hurt, and there is going to be some suffering. And people were not lining up to jump on board. Jesus, this is my favorite one of Jesus's, right? Because Jesus had this thing, he said, love your enemies. And Jesus was the first person in history to teach that way. 
It's kind of just second nature for us now, right? Like love your enemies. But the thing is that in Jesus' day, in Jesus' time, it was so completely different to what we view your enemy as today. Because it's really easy to delete a Facebook comment of someone who said something or hated on you. It's really easy to kind of block them on social so you don't have to put up with whatever they're saying. But when Jesus said, love your enemy, Jesus was speaking to a culture where if you opposed Rome, they came for your head. They pulled their swords out and they came for you with the entire force of the Roman Empire behind them. And Jesus said, when that happens, I want you to love your enemy. Jesus' teachings didn't drive his movement forward. In fact, more often than not, they drove people away. And what kept people coming back, what kept people interested in Jesus, wasn't his teachings, but the claims Jesus made about himself. Because they were the driving force of the Jesus movement. See, Jesus claimed some pretty radical things. Jesus made claims like, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus says, I have the power to forgive sins. Jesus even made this radical claim. He said, I am God. And Jesus said, death cannot defeat me. And then he died. And when he died, his followers assumed that he would do what all dead people do. That he would stay dead. Because when he died... His followers didn't live in a world like we live with superheroes. They didn't have superhero movies that they went to and that they, they kind of knew how the story would play out. Because for so many of us, if you're into superhero movies, if you're into the greatest superhero of all time, Batman, or if you're into some lesser kind of superhero like Wonder Woman or Green Lantern or... Green Lantern, that movie was terrible with Ryan Reynolds. What was he thinking? Um, but if you're into Aquaman or one of those other movies, you know that it's not over until the hero wins. Like just last, last year, end of last year, I was sitting um, in, the, in the movies watching the brand new Avengers movie. And it was getting to this climactic moment and everyone's kind of thinking, right, this is the end of it. And if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, but you had a year to see it. Like I'm not spoiling anything for you. Like it's getting to this point and it's get, reaching this pinnacle moment. And you think the Avengers are just about to win and then all of a sudden, half of them just disintegrate before your eyes. And when that happened, the first thought through my head wasn't like, oh my goodness, they've lost. The first thought through my head was like, there's another movie coming. Why? Because we look at this and we see this in the lens of heroes and we go, hey, you know what? If the hero hasn't, uh, has, hasn't uh, won, it's not over yet. But this wasn't a story for Jesus' followers. This was real life. And sometimes in real life, the hero doesn't win. And as valiantly as they fight, sometimes it just doesn't turn out the way we want. And in that moment when Jesus died, his followers hit the unfollow button. They were distressed. They were upset. Not only had they given three years of their life to following this person who claimed to be God, but now they had lost a friend. And none of them were expecting him to rise from the grave. Because if you make a claim like, I'm the savior of the world, your followers expect you to be able to save yourself from the Roman Empire. Like, if you can't beat the Roman Empire, how are you supposed to save the world? But what they misunderstood and what they didn't realize until three days later is that Jesus didn't step into history as a hero. Jesus stepped into history as a savior. See, it was his plan all along 
to die. Not as God's condemnation or God's judgment against the world, but as an act of God's love for the world. See, Jesus stepped into history knowing the whole time that he was going to give up his life, not because he wanted to save himself, but because he wanted to save the world. And three days later, the tomb was empty. And three days later, when that tomb was empty, his disciples weren't waiting there counting down 10, 9, 8, because they thought it was over. But the tomb was empty. And that's what reignited the Jesus movement. That's what reignited people to write about this event. That's what reignited Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. That's what reignited Paul to begin to plant churches all around the Mediterranean Rim because we don't believe because of a book. We believe because of the event that inspired the book. If you're a follower of Jesus, your faith is not based on a book. Your faith is based on an event. Let me put it this way so it's kind of sticky because that one was a little bit clunky. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. At the center of our faith is an event, and that event inspired history. Uh, sorry, that event inspired the documents to be written. It inspired people who were scared and who ran away to all of a sudden be, be some, uh, some of the most courageous men and women that have ever existed. It inspired someone who hated the church to do a, a 180 and begin to uh, move the church forward. Because at the center, they knew was not some kind of book, but was an event that changed the course of history. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's incredibly exciting news. Because it means your, your faith doesn't hinge on whether you can prove every single fact in a collection of documents. Your faith hinges on an event that occurred in history. And this week, to kind of get us ready and to kind of prepare us for part three, because part three is going to be fun next week, I want you to begin to think about and answer this question. What do you struggle to believe about the event? Maybe you've never even thought about the event. Maybe you've never even kind of thought like, oh, hang on a minute. Like, yeah, like, let's not worry about science. Let's not worry about hell and suffering. Like, let's worry about the fact that like, at the center of Christianity is a claim that a guy lived, died, and rose again. Like, that's ridiculous when you think about it, right? So what is it that you struggle to believe about the event? Get a pen out. Get some paper. Maybe get your phone out. That's probably more reasonable. Grab your phone out and begin to write down those things that you struggle to believe about the event. Is it something like, well, you know what? I'm like, how do we access that event? Like, how do we know? Like, how do we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't just make it up? How do we know that? How do we know that someone didn't just steal the body? How do we, how do we know like, that the church experienced persecution? How do we know any of these things? How do we know that Jesus even died? How do we know that Jesus even lived? And if you're uh, maybe in here and, you, and you kind of, uh, you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've explored the event. Maybe you've kind of thought about it and you, you kind of know all about it. I want you to write down the questions that maybe your friends or your family or your co-workers or those people or those parents on your kids' sporting teams or musical teams ask you that you're afraid that they'll ask you about the event. You think to yourself, I hope no one asks me this question because I'm not even sure about it myself and I wouldn't know how to begin and how to have that discussion with them. What is it you struggle to believe? And then I want you to, to do something else. 
I want you to ask a follow-up question. I want you to ask if that barrier could be removed. So if you had some questions and that barrier was removed, that obstacle was removed, would you follow Jesus? Because I think this is something that, that too few of us don't ask enough of. Because it's really, it's, it's okay to ask question after question after question after question after question. But there has to become a point where you say, you know what? Enough barriers have been removed that, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And that's uncomfortable, right? Because that means that if enough barriers were removed, that you might have to change some things if you believe it to be true. That if you believe it to be true, it might change the way that you live your life. It might change the way that you interact with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers. But the reason I also want you to ask this question is because if the answer is no, I want you to discover that about yourself. I want you to realize straight off the bat, you know what, nothing anyone is going to say, nothing that anyone shows me to be true, nothing that anyone demonstrates to me could ever remove a barrier. And in that moment, you learn something about yourself. You learn that even if you could, uh, someone could demonstrate to you that it was true, you'd still refuse to believe it. Even if someone showed you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the event occurred, you would go into that conversation knowing, well, I'm not going to believe anything that person's going to say anyway. So why bother having the conversation in the first place? Just recognize that it doesn't matter what you show me, I've already kind of shut that down. Now, in the last minute, I just want to talk to those of you in this room who would consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Because chances are, maybe... Something I've said this morning has kind of made you uncomfortable. Because we don't really talk like this in church. Everyone's always like, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And then this guy gets up and says about an event. Kind of, don't worry about that, point people to an event. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, you're like, Chris, like, what if no one wants to look at the book after I talk about the event? What if, like, what if I lose some kind of footing? And what if I show people about the event and then no one ever wants to explore Jesus' teachings further? What if it's like, oh, the event happened, cool, end of story. Let me alleviate your fears. When someone accepts the historicity of the resurrection, you generally don't have to convince them to lean into what Jesus taught. When you can show, hey, the resurrection occurred in history, that's pretty amazing. Because a guy stepped into history, predicted his own death and resurrection, and pulled it off. Most people generally want to hear what someone like that has got to say. What someone like that, how they viewed the world, how they viewed other people. You don't generally have to show that to them. But what it does for us, what it does for those of us, and I include myself in this because I grew up in church and all through life, I was like, I just got to point people to a book. I got to validate a book. I got to show them a book. But what it does for us is it takes an incredible weight off our shoulders. Because now, in order for someone to follow Jesus, you don't have to show them that the Old Testament happened. You don't even have to prove to them that the New Testament is inspired. You just have to point them to an event. And you can say, hey, if this happened, it changes everything. We can get to your questions later. Your questions are fantastic. They're important. But unless this happened, then we don't even need to look at those questions because Christianity is off the table. And it's this event that we are going to look at next week. And it is going to be a wild ride. But I'd love to pray all of us as we finish up today. Jesus, it is sometimes really difficult to kind of wrap our minds around a different way of thinking. For those of us who have kind of grown up in church, 
all our lives, it can be really challenging to think like, well, hang on a minute, like, my pastor said, or my parents said, or my brother and my sister said, like, they were always pointing me to a book. The truth is that our faith doesn't hinge on a book, it hinges on an event, and, and we are so thankful for that. We are so thankful that, that we believe, not because of what the Bible says, but because of what Jesus did. And so, Lord, I just want to pray for maybe um, people who are kind of coming back to church, or maybe for people who are stepping into church for the very first time who are wrestling with this, that as they begin to explore, maybe as they come back next week to hear about the event, that you would help them put their deal breakers to the side, that you would help them put their barriers to the side and they would just focus in on Jesus and focus in on this event of the resurrection. Because if the resurrection occurred, it changes everything. But if it doesn't, then you may as well walk away from Christianity altogether. So Lord, I pray that this week we would get really honest about those deal breakers we have. That we would get really honest about those things that surround the event that we're not sure about, but we wish we knew. And that we could come back ready to begin to have some honest conversations with our friends and families about you and point them towards the event. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.